This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash Counselor Toolbox to register. Hi, and welcome to Tip 54, Treating Chronic Pain in Persons with Substance Use Disorders, brought to you by allceus.com. Now, please remember, if you want to download the full tip for this, which is just going to be an overview today, um, you can go to samsa.gov and download it in PDF form. You can also order it from SAMHSA free of charge. If you are taking this as a live interactive CEU credit, you're going to need to answer every single poll question. The first couple questions we ask you are for your name and your email address. Those don't go out to the general public, but we need to have those so we can track and prove to your board that you are actually here and relatively conscious for most of the presentation. So, okay, let's go ahead and go on. The first thing, real easy, just type in your name, your first and your last name. Again, this is so we can track it. And I'm going to go ahead on and talk about some of the objectives while you're doing that. Tonight, we're going to define the problem. What a, how big is this problem when we're talking about t dealing with chronic pain in persons with substance use disorders? We will identify and discuss differential diagnosis for various pain conditions, examine the similarities between chronic non-cancer pain, abbreviated CNCP, and addiction, identify the impact of chronic non-cancer pain on patients, discuss effective interventions for chronic non-cancer pain, and identify what we as counselors can do. And when I say we as counselors, I mean we don't have the ability to prescribe medications. We're not physical therapists. So what is our role in the whole pain management spectrum? So we're going to talk about that. Now, I want you to enter your email address. And again, this is so we can track it. We can also email you um, any information you will, you will need, including access to the course quiz afterwards so you can get your CEUs. Chronic non-cancer patients with addictive disorders are about 32%. So these people who have chronic pain and addictions comprise about 32% of the people with chronic pain. Okay, so how many people have chronic pain? Well, let's look at that. People who are older than 20 with pain lasting more than three months, 56% in the past year have reported that they had pain lasting more than three months. That's more than half. That's a lot of people in pain for a really long time. Why is that? What is causing this 
chronic non-cancer pain. People with disabling pain in the previous year, 36%. So we're looking at a little bit more than one in three people. So if you look around your office, if there's 12 people in your office, that means four of them have had disabling pain within the past year. That's a lot. People over the age of 65 with pain lasting over a year, more than half. Now as people get older, we kind of expect more pain and more kind of problems. Um, <clears throat> but still, 57% is a really big percentage of the people over 65. People who are older than 12, older than 12 years old, you know, just coming into teenagers, all the way up to however old, who report non-medical use of pain relievers in the past year, 5%. So there's 5% of people out there over the age of 12 who are recreationally using pain relievers. People over the age of 12 who illegally used pain medications, so now we're talking about your prescription drugs, 19%. People with, okay, so let's actually go back to that. So 5% used uh, pain relievers for non-medical reasons. 19% of people illegally used pain meds, which means if I can do my math, 14% of those people were illegally using pain meds to address a pain issue because either they couldn't get the meds from their doctor or they chose not to go to the doctor or some other reason. And people with opioid addiction and chronic pain range from 30 to 60% depending on exactly how you ask the question. Now as far as your um, quiz for this CEU goes, don't worry about these numbers. You can find these numbers in the tip if you really want to go back and look at them. My point in bringing them up to you was just to show you that this is really a big problem. It's not just, you know, 5 or 10% of the people. We're talking 30 to 50% of the people we're dealing with may be dealing with not chronic non-cancer pain. And we'll talk about some of those things, but I mean, think in your mind about some of the things your patients may be reporting to you that are causing them problems, neck problems, headaches, migraines, stomach problems, fibromyalgia, the list kind of goes on. And some of that can be debilitating. So let's take a little bit more of a look at this. Chronic pain conditions, low back pain. Now if you're sitting, if you're a driver, if you're sitting all day, if you've got a weak lower back, if there's a variety of reasons you could have low back pain. They've also found that some people, not me, I store pain in my upper back, but some people store stress in their lower back. So low back pain has a lot of different reasons. Having a good physical examination and having a good ergonomic examination of not only your working, but your living space. So let's think about that. At work, we have an ergonomic specialist that comes around and makes sure we have our keyboards right and our uh, monitors right and this, that, and the other and everything's right. But I notice when I get home, I curl up on the sofa next to my dog and I'm always sort of cattywampus. That's not ergonomically correct. And over a period of time, it can cause stress and strain and aches and pains and all kinds of other stuff. So it's important for people to be able to understand that maybe they weren't feeling a lot of pain or maybe they were just kind of on the verge of muscle spasm. But if they're not paying attention to their posture, they may cause themselves additional pain. So let's rule out the physical causes for it. We can also look at the emotional causes for it. Is there something going on with that person emotionally that they may be somaticizing their stress into lower back pain? 
The same thing goes for neck pain and upper back pain. Some of us, when we get stressed, the more stressed we are, the higher our shoulders go. Periodically, throughout the day, that's redundant, I know, think to yourself, lower my shoulders. I even do it when I'm laying in bed at night. I'll notice that I'm laying in bed and I'm all scrunched up around the pillow, and I have to say, lower your shoulders. I'm a little high strung. But anyway, I digress. These are things that can really help people become more mindful of where they're storing their stress, how they're handling their stress, and what's causing their pain. Now, there may be some cognitive stuff, emotional stuff, physiological stuff, lots of stuff going on to cause this. But if they're more mindful of what they're doing to exacerbate it, they can at least work on that. It gives patients a feeling of control. One of the things in a group that I do called Stress Management for Pain is we do focus on that. We do progressive muscular relaxation. So people start to hone in on when those muscles are tight and they can say, oh, okay, this isn't feeling right. I need to roll my shoulders. I need to stretch out. I need to shake it out a little bit. Arthritis, whether you like it or not, whether you have an old football injury from high school or it's just a fact of getting older, most of us end up with some sort of arthritis or joint kind of pain. I can tell you when a cold front is coming in. And, you know, people used to joke that, oh, once you hit 40, it's all downhill from there. You can predict the weather better than the weatherman. They were right. <laughs> so we do have to help people understand that some of this is natural aging. Everybody, or almost everybody, experiences pain, maybe even a little bit every day. A little ache here, a little twinge there. It doesn't mean you're falling apart. It doesn't mean that you have some catastrophic condition. It just means you're human and you're existing and you're interacting in the world. So back to arthritis. What does it mean to people? If especially like rheumatoid arthritis and things that can be debilitating can not only be painful and frustrating and cause irritability, but it also can prevent people from doing those very things that they used to do to relax, like gardening or woodworking. So we need to look at each patient and say, what does it mean to you? What does, this what does this pain mean to you? And how is it impacting you emotionally, physically, socially? How is it impacting your hobbies and your work, your self-esteem? Fibromyalgia is another one that um, I haven't seen as much lately, but there was a period when I was working in Florida that I saw it a lot. And that may just be differences in diagnosing between the two places, between Florida and Tennessee, I don't know. What I am um, cognizant of is those patients who do have fibromyalgia have some excruciating pain that's unpredictable. And it's this unpredictability or sometimes this incessant pain that really grates on them. It impacts what they're able to do, their mood, their ability to get restful sleep, a whole lot of other things. So fibromyalgia is a big one. And once it's diagnosed, there are medications that can be used, but finding the right medications to treat that pain, especially in a person who has co-occurring substance use, is challenging because you can't, or ideally you would, won't, use your first line, your opiates, and your benzodiazepines. So you're going to start with things like Neurontin. Um, and that works for some people. It depends on the person and figuring out you've got to weigh the costs and balances and if you've got somebody with substance use and it looks like the only thing that's going to help them 
is some sort of opiate-based medication, what are your options? Is there a methadone clinic that they could go to? So at least somebody is controlling the dispensation of the medication. Talking with the client about whether there's somebody who could control and dispense their medication that they live with, maybe a, a significant other who can control it. But we'll get to some of that later. TMJ, it's another one of those things that can cause excruciating pain. It can cause headaches, it can cause neck pain, jaw pain, um, can cause cracks in teeth. So looking at that person and what is causing the TMJ, what is causing the person to grind their teeth. And a lot of times with TMJ, one of the frustrating things is most of the clenching you can control during the day. But a lot of the clenching that's done is done at night. So overnight, you know, the person may have a really good day controlling it, being cognizant, being mindful, relaxing before bed, and then they go to bed, and their subconscious and their dreams and everything else kick in, and they wake up, and they feel like they've been chewing on beef jerky all day or all night, and their jaw is just throbbing. So how does that impact them? How does that impact their mood and their outlook for the day? You wake up in the morning, you set your foot out of bed, and the first thing you think is, oh my gosh, I hurt. That's not getting the day off to a good start. How can they deal with that? And Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease, um, we know, is a digestive disorder. It's very painful. It can cause a lot of people to have days off, because not only is it painful, it's also not something that people are as likely to talk about as maybe neck pain, back pain, or TMJ. You know, they don't want to talk about their digestive stuff. But it causes a lot of pain, a lot of disruption from work, a lot of frustration. So chronic non-cancer pain and addiction frequently co-occur. Now, we'll talk about some of that, I think, in a little while. But one of the things I want you to really consider is what's going on in addiction and co-occurring disorders, because we know co-occurring disorders are the rule, not the exception. So if somebody has an addiction, we can pretty well guess that some of their neurotransmitters are a little wonky. Chronic non-cancer pain, one of the, the things or several of the, the chemicals that control our perception of pain are neurotransmitters. Oh, hey, neurotransmitters out of whack in addiction, neurotransmitters may be out of whack in chronic non-cancer pain. Not to say that there's not a physiological cause, but we do need to look at are there some things we can do to stabilize the perception of pain? Chronic non-cancer pain and addiction have shared neurophysiological patterns involving abnormal neural processing. Effective pain management in patients with or in recovery from substance use disorders must address these conditions simultaneously. If you pull away the pain meds, you go, nope. You abuse those, so you can't have them anymore. You've got to get sober. How likely is somebody to stay clean and sober if they're in excruciating chronic pain? Talk about angry, tired, and, well, maybe lonely. You may not be hungry, but you've got a lot of those relapse triggers in there. So you've got to treat them both at the same time, which is what I was talking about earlier. Let's take it from multiple approaches. We may not be able to or we may not want to look at opiates as our first line of intervention. So let's look at physical therapy. Let's look at progressive muscular relaxation. Let's look at meditation. Let's look at neurotransmitters. Let's look at ergonomics. Let's see what we can do in all these other areas to mitigate the pain to see if we can get it to a controllable state. 
Chronic non-cancer pain and substance use disorders fluctuate in intensity over time and under different circumstances. Have you ever noticed when you get tired or stressed out, things just hurt worse? Hmm, let's think about that. So you have somebody who is going through a stressful period in their life. They tend to somaticize anyway, so they're sucking all that stress in, and it's got to go somewhere. So it starts coming out as muscle spasms, muscle cramps. When people are depressed, and I used to have my class do this when, when I taught in Florida, I'd have them walk around during one of the breaks. We'd take an extended break, and they were supposed to walk around for the entire 15-minute break, just kind of shuffling their feet with their head down. How do you think they felt after 15 minutes of doing that? If you do it for five minutes, you'll feel that your neck gets tight because those muscles are going, pull the head up, pull the head up. Your back feels wonky. Your posture's out of whack. You feel bleh. Another one of my clinical terms for the day. As opposed to if you carry yourself up high. So as people get stressed and depressed and they start feeling like they've got an albatross around their neck and walking like that, guess what? They actually are causing themselves some additional pain. So helping them focus on what they can do and what they can control. That whole serenity prayer coming back to bite you now. Both of them require ongoing management. It may not even be stressful stuff going on that increases pain um, for a person. It could be a change in the barometric pressure or whatever it is in the weather. But I guarantee you, there are certain days where it's colder or rainier where people will go, oh, I hurt more today, or certain conditions that cause that. So we need to help people be aware of what makes their situation worse, the substance use or the pain, so they can look for relapse triggers and relapse trigger interventions for both of those. Just like we do for the mental health and the substance abuse, we need to include the physical health here. Because if one of the three triad is out of whack, <clears throat> if you've ever tried sitting on a three-legged bar stool that only had two legs, what happens? Yeah. Okay. Both of these are also neurobiological with evidence of a disorder's central nervous system function. It's not just all in their heads. I mean, the brain chemicals are. But it, it's not cognitive. They can't just wish it away. Some of it is actually biochemical. What are we dealing with? And that is going to differ from person to person to person. But we can't ignore that. Treatment of one condition can support or conflict with the treatment of the other. So, for instance, a medication appropriately prescribed for a particular chronic pain condition may be inappropriate to give the patient with a substance use disorder history. Um, Vicodin. You don't want to give Vicodin to somebody who has a history of substance use, whether it be or substance abuse, whether it be alcohol abuse or opiate abuse, let's just not even open that door until we're at our last resort and we have a plan, a protective plan in place. There are some other medications that may work just fine that could be used as an alternative. Part of it is identifying what neurochemical pathways are wonky. And that is something that the pain med doctor will do. Mediated by genetics and environment. Some people, just by nature, seem to have a lower pain tolerance. And some people may have a lower pain tolerance for certain things. It's important for them to be, for, for their feelings to be validated. Saying, oh, pfft, that doesn't hurt. Uh, no, no, we need to validate what they're feeling and help them get through it. Same thing as we do with emotional distress or substance use or anything else. 
invalidating someone's pain, telling them it doesn't hurt that bad or they can get through it, <clears throat> is only going to make the problem worse. Environment, obviously, we talked about ergonomics, stress, even the bed people sleep on. If they're not sleeping in a good sleep hygiene environment, it can cause additional pain and discomfort and stress. Again, going back to if you're not getting enough sleep, likely you're perceiving more pain because you're tired. Your body doesn't have the energy to go, okay, let me block this pain here, block this pain here, and deal with these 16 other things. Don't let your patients get exhausted if you can help it. Try to help them figure out how to get quality sleep, if not quantity and quality. Chronic pain and substance use disorders may have significant behavioral components. There's definitely, and, and I want to tread lightly here, uh, or tread carefully, if someone's complaints about pain are regularly rewarded, then it can inadvertently increase their perception of pain, where something that normally they would have just shaken off, they are suddenly now debilitated by. Chronic pain can also have behavioral components in that people just can't do anything and they start to feel helpless and hopeless. The same thing with substance use disorders. So again, we need to focus on those aspects that the person can change and can do to mitigate their chronic pain, to mitigate their anxiety or their depression, to mitigate their risk for substance relapse. Both may have serious harmful consequences if left untreated. So let's think, if chronic pain is left untreated, you'd say, huh? you know, maybe the pain is not progressive in nature. It's not cancer. We're, call we're only talking about chronic non-cancer pain. So worst case scenario, whatever it is, gets worse. So that's a bad thing. But theoretically, let's say the pain is just chronic pain and the condition that's causing it is not going to get worse, but we don't treat the pain. What's going to happen? I think most of us have been in pain at one time or another for longer than an hour or two or three. Think about the last time maybe you broke an arm or you were in pain, you strained your back, you were in pain for a week. Irritability, inability to get enough sleep, difficulty concentrating, increased anxiety or depression, which eventually starts to erode relationships, which eventually starts to eliminate social support, which eventually can lead back to substance relapse. Yes, that is the worst possible scenario. However, it is a scenario. So let's try to help people have the highest quality of life possible, especially in people with a history of substance use disorders. How many times did they use because they were self-medicating pain, emotional or physical? Both of these, pain and substance use, require multifaceted treatment and have similar physical, social, emotional, and economic effects on health and well-being. We just kind of talked about that. So. Chronic pain often results from a process of neural sensitization following injury or illness in which thresholds are lowered. So, okay, you may normally, it may not hurt to touch, but then maybe you have surgery and they cut that arm open and say you had, um, what is this, carpal tunnel surgery. They cut that arm open and they sew it back up. And for some reason, when it heals, the, the pain threshold is lowered. The nerve endings are more sensitive. Normally, non-noxious stimulation becomes painful. So something that normally wouldn't bother you at all, you're like, ow, that really hurts. Stop it. Um, <laughs> I've got children. That's generally what it sounds like. Um, 
so these are things we need to pay attention to because when somebody has an injury, it's very possible that when it heals, it's going to be more sensitive for a period of time or maybe indefinitely. Then we also have the situations where we have someone who has um, maybe an amputation and they have phantom pain. That's not not pain. That's still pain. It's just their nerves are misfiring, these spontaneous neural discharges. So we need to be aware that these are real and they are going to impact the person. You can also have that even if there wasn't an amputation, maybe something's healed and it's fine and then all of a sudden in the middle of the week for no apparent reason it feels like somebody just jabbed it with a knife. That's that spontaneous neural discharge and you're like, where did that come from? Helping people, number one, not freak out that they ruptured something or did something wrong. Helping them figure out how to handle that, whether it's a lower threshold or um, a spontaneous neural discharge or whatever the case may be. And just helping them understand why it's happening. Half the time, once people understand the mechanism, why it's going on, they can figure out ways to deal with it in their own head. So let's give them the education and go, you know, sometimes your body just does this. When I work with patients who have had surgeries and are complaining of that, the um, hypersensitivity, we speculate, and I don't know this to be true, but we speculate that it's the body's way of protecting itself from re-injury. If that helps your patient get through, then great. Okay, so what are the physical, social, emotional, and economic effects on health and well-being? We already have some answers here. Um, lack of sex drive, loss of a spouse um, because they can't do anything, they're in pain and, uh, all the time. It's really hard on relationships if one spouse becomes completely debilitated. Um, bankruptcy because of medical bills or the spouse that's in pain or the person that's in pain not being able to work. Depression and anxiety. What are the two characteristics of depression? Hopelessness and helplessness. Well, if the pain is intractable and there is nothing you can do about it, it's constant, there's nothing you can do about it, yeah, I'd feel pretty hopeless and helpless too, especially if it's keeping me from doing all those things that I used to enjoy. Loss of work. Some people have difficulty with their self-image because they're not who they used to be. Who are they now? They're not the marathon runner. They're not the, uh, my grandfather, um, as he got older, developed Parkinson's disease. And when he was a young man, um, he painted houses, and he was an excellent painter. One of the things, and it in a way haunts me to this day, um, he was always very particular that lines be straight and clean. So wherever like the, the baseboards met the wall, it was straight and clean. When he started developing some Parkinson's syndromes, the shakes, he couldn't make straight, clean lines anymore. And it about destroyed him. Because that's what he did. And he was an excellent painter. I mean, he, he would take pride in his work. Um, he also made miniatures. Same basic thing. You can't operate all those little, tiny, um, woodworking things and paint these little miniatures when, you, when you're shaking all the time. And that frustrated him because there was nothing else he felt he could do. Um, again, we need to ask the patient, what does it mean to you not to be able to do these things? Are there other things you can do instead? 
For him, the answer was really no. He was very limited in what he could do because of other disabilities. So talking with your patients and helping them reconstruct their self-image. There may be a grieving process they have to go through if this pain is not something that we can completely make go away. Um, exhaustion and increasing pain. If people aren't sleeping, everything seems worse. Sometimes everything is worse. Okay, so effects of chronic non-cancer pain on health. It contributes to a sense of exhaustion. Not only because you may not be sleeping well, but you have X amount of energy, whatever X is. And your body has to use that energy for digestion, respiration, cell regeneration, all of that kind of stuff. And if it's busy spasming muscles or doing whatever else it's doing that is causing the pain, it can also be exhausting. It can trigger emotional responses, frustration, anger, irritability, depression. These emotional responses can produce more pain. Have you ever known someone, I think we all have, if we've been working in the field for very long, who takes their anxiety or their stress or their depression and they feel it. Pain hurts, or not pain hurts, pain hurts, of course. <laughs> depression hurts. When people get depressed, they actually feel creaky and their limbs feel heavy and it hurts to move. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but a lot of pain um, perception is related to serotonin. Serotonin related to depression. So it's not a surprise that depression hurts. And yes, I did steal that from one of the um, medication commercials online. But it's true. It is true. So we need to help people understand that it's not just they're making this up and they're being big babies or whatever. They actually may be feeling more pain. So what do we do about that? There are physiological and psychological sequel of uh, pain that can be exacerbated by inactivity and the overuse of sedating drugs, which generally make you inactive. A body in motion tends to stay in motion. A body at rest tends to stay at rest. And yes, I took that from another drug commercial too, but that's also a physics principle. Anyway, um, if you've ever been on bed rest or, again, even had the flu for like a week and been in bed, I never realized until I was on bed rest how much tireder, more tired, you could get by being in bed all the time. It's exhausting because your body, your circadian rhythms get all out of whack. You get creaky if you're not using those muscles. I had an um, injury. I don't even remember what it was at this point in time. But the doctor said, you need to make sure you move it every day. We don't want to put it in a sling because that actually causes your muscles to tighten up and it will make it more painful in the long run which totally made sense. Our muscles are meant to move, so we need to move them. Inactivity and overuse of sedating drugs. So let's talk about addiction. We've been talking about pain so far. Risk factors for addiction. Genetics. We know that genetics plays a part. There have been twin studies done. There have been lots of studies done. 40 to 60% of a person's vulnerability to addiction may be a genetic. Now, just having a vulnerability doesn't mean that you're going to get it. Just having a vulnerability to cancer doesn't mean you're going to get it. It just means you have a greater likelihood. Mental illness. A person may attempt to relieve depression or anxiety with substances. We also know that mental illness is genetic. Hmm, is there a pattern here? And environmental factors. Examples include poverty, poor parental support, living in a community with high drug availability, and using substances as an, at an early age. 
One of my favorite um, resources that I refer people to to look at environmental protective and risk factors is called the Florida Youth Substance Abuse Survey. The Florida Youth Substance Abuse Survey. F-Y-S-A-S is what it's abbreviated as. Google it. It gives you some really neat charts that show you your most common risk and protective factors that they found are correlated, not causally related, but correlated to the development of addiction. None of these can we prove a one-on-one causation. If you've got this gene, you're going to become an addict. If you're depressed, you're going to become an addict. We can't do that. We haven't figured out what exactly causes addiction. But we do know there are some things that are more common in people with addictions. So if they have a genetic vulnerability, they have a history of depression, anxiety, or other mental illness, and they have risk factors in their environment for the development of addiction, you've got like three big red warning flags going, let's think about how we're going to treat this pain so we don't set this person up to become addicted. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people take opiates and don't become addicted. Okay, I I will put that out right there. Lots of people have root canals, take pain meds, don't become addicted. Most of them don't even finish the whole prescription. But there is a percentage of people who could. So it's important to be able, from a clinical perspective, to be able to say, okay, who might be at risk? Cross-addiction. Addiction to one substance can be linked with addiction to other substances or activities, which is why I said in the beginning, even if somebody only had problems abusing alcohol in their past, let's not just throw opiates out there going, well, that wasn't your drug of choice. No, (laughs) but people can substitute addictions, develop cross-addictions, and they can develop addictions that are kind of linked. Like if you always smoked when you drank, two addictions. Individuals with chronic pain and histories of substance use disorders may be at increased risk of cross-addiction to any medication that's reinforcing. The interesting thing about opiates, which is what makes them so addictive um, to people who have that propensity, is the fact that it's positive and negative reinforcement. What I mean by that, it's positive reinforcement and that it makes people feel really good. It's negative reinforcement in that it takes away the pain. So not only does it take away the pain, it makes you feel good. If it just took away the pain and you were just kind of there, it wouldn't have near the reinforcing value. So if someone has lots of risk factors for the development of addiction or even a history of substance use disorders or some other type of addiction, eating disorders, gambling, sex addiction, we need to look at those too. It's important to pay attention to what they're ingesting and whether they're putting themselves at risk for developing an addiction to opiates or pain meds. Hope that makes sense. Okay. The cycle of pain. Chronic non-cancer pain provides both positive and negative reinforcement of substance abuse. Hey, I guess I got ahead of myself. Positive reinforcement. A behavior is followed by a consequence that's desirable. So if somebody uses heroin or Vicodin or oxycodone, they feel really good. And the negative reinforcement. They don't feel pain either. They're feeling happy and they're feeling no pain. This sets up a situation where it's sort of doubly reinforcing. So think about the last time you were really sick or in pain and it lasted more than a week. I just want you to kind of bear that in your mind. 
I've asked you to think about it a couple of times, but we're going to talk about that more. How it impacted your relationship, your day-to-day -day activities, your household chores, your life at work, all those things. So when you're assessing for chronic pain, there are certain things that you're going to ask. And for a list of assessment tools, you can go to tip 54 in Appendix B. But some of the things we really want to ask, and if you're in a CARF accredited facility, and I think even JCO, um, you will already probably have these in your assessment documentation. However, we're going to go through them. Pain onset. When did it start? Has it been going on since you were eight? Or has it been going on since last week? The quality of the pain. Is it burning? Is it stinging? Is it stabbing? Is it aching? Is it throbbing? You can find all kinds of creative words to use. And I find with my patients, if you have a access to a laminating machine and you can create a flip chart, um, sometimes when you need those creative words, as you're going through the assessment, you can flip it over and give them something to look at. Because they're just like, I don't know, it hurts. Well, tell me about how it hurts. The severity of the pain on a scale from 1 to 10 or 1 to 5, how bad is it? Mitigating factors, what makes it better? Ice packs, heat packs, stretching, exercise, sleep, anti-inflammatories. There's a whole list of things. You can ask what they've tried and what works, even if just for a short period. Just like we've talked about for helping people stay sober or helping lift depression or deal with anxiety. It doesn't have to be the panacea that makes the pain go away forever. If it makes the pain go away for 20 minutes, let's talk about it. Maybe there's something there we can work with. What makes the pain worse? Not getting enough sleep, um, carrying heavy boxes, grinding your teeth, whatever it is for that person. And what are the results of investigations into the etiology? Have you gone to the doctor? What did he say? Then we want to look at pain-related functional impairment, which means you've got this pain. How is it affecting your life at work, your relationships, at home, your earning ability, your hobbies, all that stuff? Pain-related functional impairment. How is it impairing your ability to function the way you used to and or the way you want to? And this is what we were talking about with self-esteem, um, self-image, and maybe a grieving process that we may need to de deal with in counseling. We also need to talk about emotional changes and sleep disturbances as a result of the pain. We want to specify as a result of the pain because there are emotional changes and sleep disturbances that are a result of a lot of other things. And you can talk about those as well. But we want to differentiate and look at the overlap and the separation between what's causing emotional changes and sleep disturbances. Cognitive changes, attentional capacity, and memory. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a lot of pain, I can't remember what I was thinking when I walked into a room half the time, especially if it's an earache. I'm a big, well, I've got a low threshold for pain when it comes to ear infections. What is the family's response to the pain? Are they supportive, are they enabling, or are they rejecting? Enabling is a big thing, especially, again, in people who have a history of substance use. They may have family members who are always trying to fix it and make it better, and they're not looking at the big picture. We definitely want somebody who's supportive, and helping families and patients redefine or effectively define the difference between being supportive and being enabling are definitely going to be 
important components of what we as clinicians can do. We also want to assess the environmental consequences. Are they getting disability income? That can be a huge reason to hold on to that pain. Loss of desired activities, that can be a huge reason to get rid of the pain. And absence from desirable or feared work. If you're able to be on long-term disability from a job you really, really hate, guess what? You may hang on to that pain a little bit more. Sometimes it's psychological, sometimes it's physiological, sometimes it's both. So we need to look at what are the motivations for somebody to get better? And what are the motivations for them to stay in pain or stay sick? Physical examination. We do need to have a recent physical exam by a GP, a neurologist, or a pain med doc who can really look at this pain and go, this is what may be causing it. This, these are the different options for treatment. So we can work as a multidisciplinary team. As with everything, there are factors that complicate the assessment. Individuals with similar conditions may describe and rate their pain differently. Some people may say it's no big deal. Some people may say, oh my gosh, where's the epidural? Okay, so <laughs> figuring out what it is for the person. You can't just say, well, you've got a toothache, so you're going to be at this level of pain. Like I said, with my ear infection, some people, my children, they can have their eardrums bulging from middle ear infections and still be running around playing. And I'm like, oh, dude, I would be like drooling on myself in bed, just absolutely in excruciating pain. It's like they don't feel it. So <laughs> we need to pay attention to the fact that certain conditions don't necessarily mean the same thing to two different people. And we need to understand what it means for that patient. And functional impairments can affect patients differently. Some people, you know, I talked about my grandfather earlier. His functional impairments not being able to paint the way he used to was a huge hit to him because he didn't feel useful anymore. And that's what he was good at. He didn't have much education, and, but he was an excellent, excellent tradesman. Um, so when he couldn't do that anymore, he was like, well, what do I do? Who am I if I'm not a painter? And we talked about that in you know, Counseling 101, when some part of someone's identity, I am a painter. Well, if you aren't a painter anymore, then what are you? I don't know. So helping people revisit that as... I'm a person who paints, and who's a darn good painter, let me tell you that. Um, so they can focus on who are they as a person, not identifying themselves as an activity. Um, but what does that mean to that person? And was it, for example, the way they relieved stress? I know when I had um, foot surgery, I'm an avid runner. And I had foot surgery, and I couldn't run for two months. I thought I was going to climb out of my skin. Because one of the things I do when I get stressed and just generally at the end of the day to kind of, you know, get rid well, used to be at the end of the day. Anyway, uh, to get rid of stress and shake out the cobwebs, let's go on a run. And I couldn't do that. For the first three weeks, I couldn't even go to the gym and ride the bike. I was like, oh, what can I do? Uh, so it started to affect my mood and my level of concentration and everything because I had all these cobwebs kind of building up and I didn't know how else to shake them out. Pain scores don't reflect tissue pathology, disability, or treatment response, always. So like I said, what may be a big deal to somebody may not be a big deal to others. So if we're looking at tissue pathology, you know, we talked about um, the skin be becoming hypersensitive after it heals. 
well, you, the doctor may look at the tissue and go, it, it's fine. I don't know why you're feeling so much more pain. So are we telling the person, you're crazy? You're not feeling pain? It's all in your head? <clears throat> Just because the tissue pathology is not there, there's nothing observably wrong, doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. We just don't know how to measure it yet. Talking to the patient, helping them figure out how to deal with any functional impairments so they can have that quality of life. If they can't do those things anymore because it hurts too much, what can they do instead? Pain reduction, optimization of function, and normal, normalization of mood is sometimes insufficient. Why? Well, pain reduction, that's a great thing. We really want to help people reduce their pain. We want to help them optimize their function and normalize their mood. But they may still be feeling empty inside because they are not a painter, a runner, a cop, a whatever it is anymore. So some things we may have to look at are self-image issues and what is holding this person back from achieving their highest quality of life. Because you know what? Even if we can eliminate the physical pain, if they've got this emotional pain and emptiness, this hole that's kind of gnawing at them, the likelihood of impending relapse, pretty good, pretty good. So we, we need to be cognizant of this and say, okay, have we done everything that we need to do? And we figure that out by asking the patient. You're here, we've reduced your pain, you're functioning as well as you possibly can be expected to with this condition. You know, you're not severely depressed or anything anymore. You're kind of stable. Is this good enough? Generally, if they're in your office, the answer is no. That's not good enough. I'm feeling empty. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling useless. They may not call it depression or anxiety anymore. They may have increases in anger. Who knows? But we have to ask the patient because the patient knows. So common co-occurring disorders, anxiety, stress about being able to pay the bills, about whether you will be able to function the same in relationships, about whether you're letting people down because you can't do the same things anymore. Anxiety is one of those words that people have a hard time with sometimes. Stress, not so much. So if you, can, if you have a whiteboard in your office, I love doing assessments with whiteboards because then we can kind of write and people can see it and go, oh, yeah. And let me add to that list. When you're just typing, they say the word and it goes away. So whiteboards, awesome. So I put up their stress. What are you stressed about? What are you worried about? And then we start making a list. Some things we can deal with, some things we may not be able to. We also talk about, again, the quality of their anxiety and the intensity. Has it gotten worse? Are there things that we can do to help you deal with that? Depression, hopelessness, helplessness as a result of this situation. Depression is a part in the grief process. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So if they're grieving, let's help them work through that. PTSD. If whatever caused this disability or this pain was from a trauma, we may need to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, not everybody who has a trauma gets PTSD. That's really, really important to take home. Some people go through traumas, and they have enough resiliency and other things in place that they can handle it. I'll go off on another little tangent here. Post-traumatic stress disorder, a triage that we can do that seems to be pretty predictable or pretty accurate is if somebody has been dealing with mental illness, 
depression, anxiety, substance abuse, whatever, in the past two years, if they don't have adequate social support that's relatively available to them, you know, within one or two hours especially, if whatever the trauma was happened near their home or their workplace, those places where they're supposed to feel safe, they feel like they're in a bubble, and their similarity to the victim, if they weren't the victim themselves, if they just watched it, um, those, are, those are four key things that we want to look at. One of the things that I looked at in my dissertation was why can some cops go through a situation, and yeah, it bothers them, they're human, but other cops go through the same situation and they develop PTSD. Well, we found the degree to which the person can feel similar to the victim. It could have been a neighbor, it could have been my house, or they don't have that social support, or they've had a, the other one is having a lot of stress in the past six months. And it could be good stress. I mean, it could be having twins or something, who knows. But if we look at those five factors, we found that the more of those five factors that people have, the higher the likelihood that it'll go from being acute stress, which is totally reasonable after a trauma, um, to post-traumatic stress, which again is totally reasonable and understandable, but we need to deal with it because it's going to negatively impact the person. So again, PTSD, if a patient is in an assessment and telling you about an event that caused their pain or not, um, but a trauma they've gone through, were they the victim? Did it happen in what was supposed to be a safe place, their, their home, their neighborhood, their work? Did they have a prior history of substance or mental health issues? Did they receive social support in a timely manner? And how much stress have they been under in the past six months? Were they already worn down? Those are all things that we want to ask because we can get a better idea about what we're dealing with or whether this person may develop full-blown full PTSD. Somatization, taking that stress, depression, anxiety, taking it inside. Stomach problems, migraines, neck pain. When you somaticize and you take that stress and you get your um, muscles all in a knot, guess what? It's really easy to pull a muscle because you've got everything all wonky anyway and if it just gets enough out of whack, it's kind of like a rubber band. You stretch it and stretch it and stretch it and eventually it's just going to go boing. Another one of the clinical terms, boing. We need to look at how people somaticize their stress and suicide. If somebody feels hopeless help and helpless long enough, regardless of the cause, they are at risk for suicide. We need to talk with them about the grief process, about their sense of hopeless hope, and their sense of ability to affect change. So, ability to cope. The concept of acceptance refers to the patient's belief that there's more to life than pain, because they may not ever be able to be pain-free. But can they focus on this other stuff? Or are they going to be focused exclusively on their pain? Being completely free of pain is unrealistic, and activity should be pursued even at the price of some increases in pain. Again, any of you who've ever worked out, if you have a really good workout, you may walk out of the gym and feel like jelly and you're like, oh, that was a good workout. And you wake up the next morning and you're like, I can't move, it hurts. Well, that pain goes away in a little while. You're strengthening the muscles, you're developing muscle balance. One of the things we find, for example, um, people who have 
tight low back often um, and low back pain often have tight hamstrings and weak abdominals. Stretching, not always fun. May hurt a little bit. Not supposed to hurt a lot, but it may hurt a little bit. Doing ab exercises, I hate them. May hurt a little bit. But once you get that muscle balance in there, like you're supposed to have, the back pain will kind of release a little bit. Um, once you get the um, flexibility in your hamstrings, the back pain may release a little bit. So you may have to go through some pain to balance out and relieve whatever dysfunction is causing the identified pain. Does that make sense? Hope so. So sometimes people have to do things that are a little bit uncomfortable to get rid of the pain. Another, you know, example is surgery. Now that's not always the solution, but sometimes you do have to go through that to, in order to make the pain go away for, you know, back problems and stuff. Thankfully, I haven't had a lot of pain, so I'm not familiar with all the surgeries. But understanding before you go into the surgery that when you come out, it may not be all better right away. You may have to go through physical therapy or something. But seeing that light at the end of the tunnel is huge in people's ability to cope. In the 1970s, the concept of hardiness was kind of created. And they found that people who had high levels of hardiness actually recovered faster. So what is hardiness? People perceive something as a challenge. It's not something that's super easy, so they're motivated to work on it. It's controllable. So it's something that they can do something about, and it's controllable. So we need to look at how much of this can we put in the person's control, and how much, you know, if we're putting it in their control, then we've got to say, you're going for this goal up here. Is it a challenge? Is it doable? Can you do this? So we provide that cheering squad, and they have to be committed. So commitment, control, and challenge is hardiness. Are they buying into this fact that, all right, the recovery may be a bugger and a half, but once I get through it, I'm going to feel like a new person. High acceptance is when somebody de decides that pain is and chooses not to dwell on the pain. This leads to lower pain intensity. So while I'm talking on this slide, I want you to focus on the chair that you're sitting on and really focus on whether you're comfortable. If you're on a hard chair, focus on how hard that chair is and how uncomfortable you are. And keep focusing on that while I talk because you'll probably start to understand some of the stuff we've been talking about. So if they don't dwell on it, they have lower pain intensity and less pain-related anxiety and avoidance. Now, before you came to this training, you were thinking, I don't want to sit in those hard chairs all day long. I wonder if there's something I can do. And, oh, yeah, remember, you're sitting on that hard chair, and you've been sitting there for about an hour now. So your tuchus is probably getting good and sore. Less depression. If you're not dwelling on it and feeling hopeless and helpless, less depression. Less physical and psychosocial disability. If you're not dwelling on it, then you're focusing on the things you can do. So what can I do physically? What can I do with friends? Instead of saying, well, my back hurts or my neck hurts or I don't want to sit in that uncomfortable chair. See, we're still talking about the chair. Yeah. Um, less physical and psychosocial disability. More daily uptime. Score. If you're not dwelling on your pain, you're actually using your brain to think, focus on something you can actually do or change or affect, you're more productive which gives you a better work status. 
So you notice up until I started talking about that chair you were sitting in, you really didn't think about it too much. But once I started talking about it, you started focusing on it and going, oh, when is this class going to be over? This chair is really uncomfortable. Yeah, there you go. Same thing for our patients on a much broader eternal scale. So if we can help them not focus exclusively on that, it'll be huge. Part of that means in counseling, focusing on what they can do and what they can change and not spending a lot of time talking about how agonizing their pain is. Is it worse? Okay, if it is, let's make a plan. But let's not spend a whole lot of time dwelling on the hopelessness of the situation and, and focus on the things that the person can change. For a list of tools to assess coping, again, tip 54, chapter 2. gives you a whole list of them. So what are some irrational or distorted thoughts that contribute to the intensification or management of pain? I'm no use to anybody most of the time. Well, that's going to make me feel pretty crappy about myself, so yeah, I'm probably going to focus on my pain then. I'm constantly in unbearable pain. Well, that could go up as one of those uh, irrational thoughts from the beginning. Constantly and unbearable. Is it constant? Are there ever periods where you don't feel pain? Maybe even for a millisecond. And is it unbearable? Because you're existing, so you're bearing it. Now, would I be that blunt with the client? No. But pointing it out at, from a clinical perspective, from a cognitive perspective, we would need to gently challenge the constantly and the unbearable. I'm just a wimp. Again, educating patients about how people feel pain differently, acknowledging the extent of their pain, and then focusing on what they can do, and maybe things that they need to do. Maybe there are times where their pain is exacerbated, so what can they do in order to keep their household running well, in order to keep their job, in order to do their daily activities? Nobody understands. Well, nobody understands exactly what you're going through because you're the only one. You are you. However, there are one in three people who have chronic non-cancer pain. So let's look at some support groups. Let's look at helping people get together and talk about how they manage the pain and how they deal with it. I hate my life, okay? If somebody comes in and that's what they have to say to you, then we've got a lot of work to do. And I would also be doing a suicide assessment. What is it particularly about your life that you hate? And what can we do to work on that? We need to identify the exacerbating and mitigating factors for both addiction and pain. Because generally, if one gets worse, the other one's not going to be far behind. Same thing with mental health. So if I had three hands, I'd put all three up. If depression gets worse, then addiction and pain are probably not far behind. I will never feel any better. Again, another one of those cognitive distortions that has very extreme words in it. And when I work with my patients, we do focus a lot on those extreme words. Never, constantly, unbearable. We try to change those a little bit and identify exceptions. We also take the word can't out of our vocabulary, and we use the word choose. I choose to focus on instead of I can't focus on anything. Well, you're focusing on complaining right now. Again, something I wouldn't say to a patient. I'm not indicating you be snarky with your patients. But in the back of your mind as a clinician, you can go, well, I can see you're focusing on something. And we can use that to gently challenge those irrational beliefs. 
my family is going to think I'm just malingering. Well, if you faked it in the past in order to get benefits, likely they are. So what are we going to do about it? I will never be the same because of pain. It will never stop. Never, again, is one of those extreme words, and it may be true. You know, depending on the person's condition, it may be true. However, we may be able to talk about ways to mitigate the pain, to lessen the pain. Yes, you may never be exactly the same. I'm not exactly the same as I was before I had my first child or my second. <laughs> we change over time. It's a matter of figuring out how we adapt our self-image to these changes that we're going through. Chronic pain management treatment goals need to include reducing pain. Like I've been saying throughout this, there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, we've talked about meditation. Acupressure works for a lot of people. I am completely needle phobic, so acupuncture just doesn't even cross my mind. I had childbirth naturally because I was more afraid of the epidural than the childbirth. So that shows you a little bit of my irrationality. Um, so acupressure, acupuncture, uh, meditation, uh, physical therapy, heat, moist heat, dry heat, ice. I guess ice is always moist. They have things out called uh, TENS units, transcutaneous electronic nerve stimulation. It feels kind of like somebody just going like this constantly. But basically, it confuses the nerve, and it keeps it busy, so it can't register pain signals. They actually work really well. I've used them before for back pain, <clears throat> for my back pain, and I found them to be exceptionally helpful. We're talking about non-medication sort of things. These are all options that obviously somebody needs to discuss with their physician. As counselors, we're not going to prescribe any of these physical things, but we can certainly suggest people talk to their physician and get prescriptions or whatever for these activities. Um, stretching, physical exercise, there's a whole host of things. Um, steam rooms, water therapy, there's a massage. If I sat here long enough, I could probably think of five or ten more. Brainstorm with your clients. If you do a pain management group, brainstorm with them and say, what has worked for you? Aromatherapy works for some people. Talk about what helps them. Maximize function. You may not be able to do what you were able to do when you were 18, but most of us can't. So we want to normalize. You know, I may not be in chronic pain, but I can't run as fast as I did or run for as long as I did when I was 18 or 20. That's just part of what's going on. So how can you maximize function the way your body is right now? And I mean, think, have them think about their body as a machine. If you wanted to optimize the function of your car or whatever machine, computer, what could you do with it? If it had an old processor and you couldn't change the processor in the computer, what else could you do to maximize function? Okay, so let's take that same analogy and apply it to you as a human. There are certain things you can't change, but what can you do to maximize your efficiency and your effectiveness and your functioning? You can also go on online, and I'm trying to think right now, if you Google uh, reasonable accommodations, you will come up with a website that suggests reasonable accommodations that employers could opt to make for people who have physical disabilities. And some of these can be helpful for your patients. For example, um, if they have bad knees may and they're a cashier, maybe providing a stool that they can sit on while they're doing their work or 
you know, there are options, <clears throat> and the federal government has already figured out a lot of those. So that's something else you can do is help them realize what they can do and help them advocate for their set themselves at home and at work. We need to address co-occurring mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, whether it's caused because of the pain or it was existing beforehand or it's caused from something completely different. It doesn't matter. We need to address it. And we need to incorporate suitable non-pharmacologic and complementary therapies for symptom management. We already went over a lot of those. This is a really fun group to do, and you can break it up over two groups if you want to. If you're doing a group on chronic non-cancer pain management, talking about these things, having people share what's worked for them. I have one uh, patient who shared with me after her back surgery, she'd be in excruciating pain at times, and her, her little doggie would crawl up in the bed with her. And that was the only thing that got her through because she would just hold on to him really, really tight. And that helped her calm down enough to get through the pain. Exercise and a physical therapy assists with homeostasis. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You didn't know this was going to be a physics class, did you? Our body is meant, we have agonists, what they call agonists and antagonists. Your bicep moves your arm this way. Your tricep moves your arm this way. For every motion, there's a muscle that does the opposite motion to keep us in balance. If, for example, your bicep is way, 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 way stronger than your tricep, then you risk causing pain in your tricep and, your, and the upper back part where it kind of feels like it's starting to be the shoulder. So if people are having physical pain, working with a personal trainer or a physical therapist, to make sure all those muscles are balanced and doing what they're supposed to do, like I talked about earlier with the tight hamstrings and the weak abdominals causing low back pain. That's a lack of homeostasis. That's a lack of balance. The body's going, whoa, something's wrong here. Exercise and therapy, physical therapy can improve posture, enhance general well-being, and can be an antidote to feelings of helplessness and personal fragility. You start feeling like you can affect something. You can make things better. And you're not going to break every time the wind blows your direction. What's our function? Assess and work with patients to mitigate co-occurring conditions. Work with patients. Don't tell them how to do it, because they're the expert on themselves. Put safeguards in place to avoid substance abuse. Count pills. Talk with them about how it's going periodically. If you notice they start missing appointments, you may want to follow up. If they have a history of substance use disorders, which is primarily what we're talking about today, um, you should put safeguards in place ahead of time. Doctors should be pill counting, um, urine screenings, those sorts of things. Reinforce behavioral and self-care components. If they actually get up and shower and present themselves, um, as opposed to kind of rolling out of bed and crawling into your office and going, oh, it hurts all over, obviously we're going to reinforce one over the other. Work with patients to reduce their stress in general, and as it relates to pain. Assess their recovery support systems. This is true with substance abuse, mental health, and pain. You've got good supports, you've got enabling supports, and you've got supports that just undermine you at every turn. Help them assess who is there for them in a healthy, sane, sober way. And identify relapse warning signs for pain, for mental health, and for addiction. Think of that three-legged bar stool. You've got to figure out and, and 
monitor all three. And create a prevention plan. I don't want to wait till I start seeing relapse warning signs and go, oh crap, I better do something. What can they do on a daily basis right now to help themselves stay focused, maximize their energy, and improve their quality of life? If they're doing all that, then those relapse warning signs, those behaviors, probably won't even have a chance to creep in. So prevention, relapse warning signs for all three, and a relapse prevention plan. What are some relapse prevention strategies to be used when working with a person with a co-occurring substance use disorder and chronic pain? Have an animal that depends on them. That can be helpful. Um, if you're focused on something other than your pain, it can help. Most animals, especially dogs, won't let you be too sedentary for too terribly long. So that helps reduce some of the sedentariness. Um, Ensure the person has social support from people who understand both conditions and their triggers, i.e. cold weather triggers, pain, which triggers anger, and depression, which triggers substance abuse relapse. So we need to make sure this person's sober social support, whether it be a sponsor or something else, understand how all these things relate and what your relapse warning signs are for any of them. Any of them. Because we need to nip this in the bud before we have to... Um, deal with something a lot more complicated. Help them focus on good self-care, including sleep, nutrition, and movement. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. It's the basic stuff. Have them focus on the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, those basic biological and psychosocial needs. Make sure that they have somebody that is a good social support checking in on them. They're a lot less likely to go really far down the rabbit hole if somebody's checking on them on a daily basis. Have a plan to keep those circadian rhythms going. Um, that way you don't get too tired and achy and blah. Meditation or hypnosis is another good one to use with people who have co-occurring substance use disorders. So there are a lot of options. There are a lot of options. It's what your patient is willing to do, can afford to do, and has the ability to do. So medical stuff. Let's go through this real quick. Your non-opioid analgesics, Tylenol, NSAIDs like ibuprofen, selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, your antidepressants, your, you know, new generation antidepressants. This article at spinehealth.com provides a great overview of how these different medications work and how they can be tried, especially working with people with co-occurring history of substance use disorders. These medical interventions and considerations are ideally um, <clears throat> going to be handled before the patient even gets to you by prescribing physicians in the ARNPs. So I'm not going to do a lot of focus on that right now. If you're interested in it, it's in the book. Download the tip. You can read it. Um, we know there are medications. What we're going to focus on is the cognitive and goal setting and all that kind of stuff, social support that the person needs. That's our part in this process. So do you have any additional questions? Um, an affordable way to have a pet. Yes, you can um, often foster pets through some of the local rescues if you don't want to necessarily commit to having a pet or you want to try it out before you commit to having one forever. You can foster pets. 
sometimes that gives people something to focus on because they have this helpless little being that either has been abused or cast aside that they can focus on. Um, working on developing treatment plans for this population, focus on the person's strengths, needs, abilities, and preferences. You really want to identify, again, what the pain means to them. How bad is it? How, it has, how is it impacting them negatively? And what can you do to mitigate those negative effects? All right, if you have any other questions, please feel free to email me at drperiodsnipes at allceus.com. That's drperiodsnipes at allceus.com. And have a wonderful rest of your afternoon. Oh, I got to do my summary first, don't I? Hey, there's many similarities with chronic pain and substance use. It's important that we provide integrated, concurrent biopsychosocial treatment. We need to remember that mood impacts pain, which impacts life satisfaction, which impacts mood. It's a circle. Re recovery supporting realistic beliefs and identifying controllable factors produces your best outcomes. So we need to support realistic beliefs, that cognitive behavioral stuff, and identify what's controllable. And we need to remember that patients with current substance use disorders need treatment for both just as much or even more than those without. So you can't take somebody who has chronic pain and maybe misusing substances and say, well, you can't have any pain treatment until you're clean and sober. It's not going to work. We need to treat them concurrently. All right, again, email me if you have any questions, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye.